0: I don't see a correlation when you look at the larger health picture of the country between availability and use of violent games and increases in everyday physical harm to other people.
1: I mean, if I'm wrong and violent video games don't cause children to behave badly, but we limit their access anyhow, the cost of that is they don't get to play video games and they go out and play soccer instead. But if you're wrong and they do cause children to react violently, but children get to play them anyhow, the cost is psychologically damaged children and other children who are physically harmed by the violence that they do. Now, I don't know which one of us is right and which one of us is wrong, but I could live with my era more than I would live with your era.
2: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosio. Bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
3: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California.
4: I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out titled The Sled. And this is Bob Ambrosia coming to you from Massachusetts where I write a blog called Law Sites. Also co-host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology now along with Monica Bay.
3: And, Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at Clio.com. That's C L I O.com.
4: Well, Craig, we uh, are in a time when teenagers and children are captivated by the allure of electronic media and technology, iPhones, social media, video games, and uh, everything else. After the recent school shooting in Florida, the topic of video game violence and its impact on children and teenagers was addressed. There was evidence that the shooter played a number of video games himself, and President Trump suggested that perhaps violent video games should be regulated.
3: Well, Bob, in the 2011 Supreme Court ruling of Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Associations, it was decided that California law restricting the sales of violent video games to minors violated the right to free speech. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at that regulation of video game violence, Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association, and its 2011 ruling, the Supreme Court, and a potential challenge to Brown, as well as the impact of video games on children and teenagers.
4: Helping us do that today are two guests who are experts in this area. First of all, I'd like to welcome to the show Cheryl K. Olson. Uh, Cheryl's an internationally known expert on using media to change behavior, promoting mental and physical health, and the effects of electronic media on children. Cheryl co founded the Center for Mental Health and Media at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. And with her husband, Dr. Larry Kuttner, she turn that research into a book called Grand Theft Childhood, The Surprising Truth About Violent Video Games and What Parents Can Do. Welcome to the show, Cheryl Olson. Thank you. And Bob, our next guest is Professor Kevin W. Saunders. He is the
3: Charles Clark Chair in Constitutional Law, professor at Michigan State University College of Law. Professor Saunders is the author of two books, Violence as an Obscenity, limiting the media's First Amendment protection and saving our children from the First Amendment. Saunders filed an amicus brief supporting California on behalf of Common Sense Media in the Brown case. Welcome to the show, Kevin Saunders.
4: Thank you. So uh, after the shooting in Florida, President Trump very specifically said that violent video games and movies could play a role in school shootings. And uh, he's certainly not the first to have made that claim. Sure, Olson, you've done a lot of research on that. What's your take on that issue? Do children playing violent video games cause them to be violent?
0: One thing that's fascinating when you look back historically, every time there's been a new medium that's come online from cheap paperback novels in the late 1800s to gangster films to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, there's been a concern about how it's going to affect the behavior of young people. And one of the things we're finding, one of the difficulties with singling out video games is, first of all, the typical teenage boy and a lot of the teenage girls nowadays play at least one or two violent video games on a regular basis. So it's a normative activity. So it's really hard to say, It's well almost like saying Crest toothpaste is linked to a particular problem. It's just ubiquitous.
4: Well, I mean, it's a, there's a little different, <laughs> a little bit different between toothpaste and, and violent video games. So, I mean, I, I mean, the True. violent video games, in fact, contain violence, and children engage in violent behavior in the course of playing right.
0: those games. But, I mean, well, th- actually, doesn't that make a difference? That, well, first of all, we had, we, we, in case you had noticed, we did have violent behavior before video games existed. So that's that's one issue. Uh, also, when children are, are engaged in violent video games, children and teenagers they're playing. They're not actually trying to hurt somebody. That's one of the big arguments in the research actually is is what do we mean by aggression? And a lot of researchers will study, they'll do experiments on college students oftentimes because they're easy to get a hold of. And they'll, they'll have them, uh, you know, they'll see is this one going to give a little louder blast of staticky noise to this other one if they win or lose something. Or they'll look at aggressive thoughts or feelings. Any listeners who have a small child at home and might be having a tantrum now and then will have aggressive thoughts and feelings toward that tantruming child. That doesn't mean they're actually going to harm the child. And that's where these things fall down sometimes is that, that, you know, our aggressive thoughts and feelings the same as aggressive behavior intended to harm. One of the things we see, for example, the CDC's, uh, in February, their uh, latest report on nonfatal assaults among persons at age 10 to 24, covering 2001 to 2015, nonfatal assaults, which I guess you could argue would be the, the thing you would most worry about, aside from the bizarre, rare thing like a school shooting, you know, those are actually down, and they've been going down and down. The more, you know, I've even seen economists argue, some of these behavioral economists, that violent video games actually decrease violence because people get those urges out or they're not out on the street. And I'm not going to go that far, but it is, I don't see a, a correlation when you look at the larger health picture of the country between availability and use of violent games and increases in everyday physical harm to other people.
3: Kevin, what's the I California appreciate- regulatory backdrop for all of this? What was California's basis for enacting the regulation?
1: There was a concern there about the impact of violent video games on children. It was a bill that was introduced by a psychologist and was based, or his attitudes were based on reading a lot of psychologists who do, in fact, find a causal impact of violent video games on violent behavior in children and backed up by statements by major health provider organizations the AMA, the Psychiatric Association, Adolescent Psychologists Association, and so on. Uh, There's a great deal of concern uh, in the industry. Again, no one is going to claim that any kid that goes and plays a violent video game is going to turn violent. And there has been a long history of blaming the media for the negative aspects of uh, childhood. But there's an instructional aspect in the first-person shooter games that wasn't in those others, to the point where in one of the school shootings, it appears that the child that did the shooting was incredibly accurate and had no real experience with actual firearms, only with video games. So it's something on top of the other uh, uh, that's uh, areas. That's a
0: proven. Uh, I'm. I'm so sorry to interrupt. Actually, the the case of this of the the I think that might have been the Paducah shooter. Um yeah. They actually did subsequently check that that person had did have experience with a gun. In fact, I think I guess the previous day had experience with a gun. So. Everything with this, you know, just as with anything else in in media now, things run ahead so fast. You have to double-check everything, and I'm having to constantly double-check things before I repeat them. I urge people to look it up, but I don't believe that that there's any – in every one of these cases, the person has had experience with a real firearm. And also, if you're shooting at a group of people who don't expect to be shot at, and they're all standing still, it doesn't take a lot of skill to actually hurt somebody, I'm sorry to say.
1: Well, I I did look it up. I couldn't double-check the people who I looked up, but I did look up uh, certain reports on it. And I may be wrong. And one of the things I come back to on this is, what's the cost of the error? I mean, if I'm wrong and violent video games don't cause children to behave badly, but we limit their access anyhow, the cost of that is they don't get to play video games, they go out and play soccer instead. But if you're wrong and they do cause children to react violently but children get to play them anyhow, the cost is psychologically damaged children and other children who are physically harmed by the violence that they do. Now, I don't know which one of us is right and which one of us is wrong, but I can live with my error more than I would live with your error.
4: Well, what happened, Kevin? What do you say about the Supreme Court decision? I mean, Justice Scalia, of all people, uh, wrote the majority opinion uh, in the case saying that You know, there's no scientific evidence that violent video games lead to violence in the real world. Did the Supreme Court get it wrong there?
1: The courts have been very skeptical in terms of the evidence. They have not been demonstrating a good understanding of statistics, demanding things like statistical certainty. Well, there's no such thing as statistical certainty. Belittling the idea of meta-analysis, the judge who said that uh, Professor Anderson, who's one of the leading uh, figures in this area, seems to think you can take one insignificant result and pile it on top of another and another till you get a significant result. And that's the whole practice of meta-analysis. So we just dismissed it altogether. Uh, There's also some interesting uh, neuropsych evidence that's coming out in terms of impact on the areas of the brain that uh, are involved in inhibition and judgment. Uh, And a federal judge said, well, just because the prefrontal cortex isn't operating normally doesn't mean that inhibition isn't being exercise someplace else in the brain. But there's no indication it's ever exercised someplace else in the brain. So there's a refusal to let science get in the way of dogma. Uh, Justice Scalia, you said of all people, but Justice Scalia is a very strong First Amendment advocate, or was a very strong First Amendment advocate. So it's not that surprising that he took that position.
3: Kevin, what kind of regulations can be imposed on First Amendment rights? We had time, place, manner. What, What kind of restrictions will the courts tolerate in this instance?
1: It's not likely that the court currently will tolerate limitations in this area. I will point out that since the decision turned on whether or not the science could demonstrate harm, it may not be a decision that can't change in the future. All the court could say is that the science, as it's developed to this point, doesn't demonstrate that we need to limit children's access to video games. But if the science develops to the point where the court sees it as being necessary, the court could come to a different decision. And I will point out that it was only effectively on this issue a 5-4 decision. Now, I know it read uh, 7-2, but two other justices, Alito and Roberts, said that the evidence may be sufficient, but that the statute was too vague.
4: I mean, there seems to be general agreement that the California statute was a poorly written statute. Most commentary you read about the case seems to agree with that proposition, but what are the chances that this case might be overturned or reversed?
1: In the short term, I don't think there's much chance. In the long term, it just depends on how the science develops.
4: What is that, what needs to be developed? In other words, there needs to be stronger evidence than there is now, or what does there need to be?
1: Stronger evidence, and I'm not sure that the court's going to buy the evidence of psychologists. Again, the, the mind is kind of mysterious Uh, You know, not everybody that smokes gets lung cancer. Not everybody that plays these video games becomes violent, but we seem somehow to be able to understand the causal action in lung cancer better than in uh, psychology. I think if anything is going to convince the court uh, to change its mind eventually, it
0: will be the developing
1: science in, uh, in neuroscience and the functioning of the prefrontal cortex.
3: Cheryl, where do you think this line needs to be drawn?
0: I think in terms of the research, one of the things I would like to see is more research on young people who actually have have previously tried to harm people or property and see if they are differentially affected by video games. Try to look at the people who are actually at higher risk. I actually tried to do such a study and had a sample ready to go and couldn't get additional funding to do it. I think one of the difficulties, too, with the California law was that they never seemed to be able to show why video games in particular were worse than movies or other kinds of things. If you go to an R-rated movie, the violence in those, I mean, they, that has, has proven demonstrably gotten worse and worse over time. There's been sort of what you call ratings creep, where what used to be R is now PG also. Much more violent than any video game that you'll see a child playing or a teenager playing. And the thing with the game also, if you get upset or scared by a game, you can stop, and the game stops. You walk away. If you're watching a a scary or violent movie, that movie keeps going unless you flee the theater. So that's sort of a, a little stopgap with games. But I also want to mention that games have ratings for a reason, I am by no means saying that parents should just throw up their hands and say, I'll let my kids play whatever they want or watch whatever they want. I'm an advocate of keeping game systems and TVs out of children's bedrooms, in fact, because we know in the research that I did at Harvard, we found that kids with game systems and computers in their rooms played more of maturity games and for more time than kids who didn't have that access. And also, the best research we have, which I think no one disagrees on, is that having electronics in the bedroom interferes with children's sleep, and that affects their health and their school grades and uh, social life in the whole range.
1: I'd like to add on the rating systems, but the rating systems are only voluntary rating systems in this country. I uh, would like to see them enforced, not against parents. If parents think their child is uh, sufficiently mature, Or is sufficiently non aggressive to handle the game, then I have never worked on a statute that suggests that parents shouldn't be able to get them for their children. It's the third person vendor that I was concerned about, and it was addressed by the California statute.
0: I know that I was just, in fact, I'm just um, editing a, a book called Child Psychiatry in the Media. And I was just reviewing some of the, the research that the FTC had done on the, on the enforcement of sales um, to minors of you know, music and DVDs and video games and so on. And while it's far from perfect, the last surveys they did show that the enforcement had gotten better than ever. The major retailers, at least, are carding and are trying to restrict access. And it's a matter of around the world, a lot of the rating systems are government partnerships if not strictly government, and it's really a matter of, you know, for whatever various reasons in the United States, we've decided we don't want government regulation. We want it to be independent, but in fairness, most of the rating systems were created one step ahead of government regulation to forestall it.
1: That's an important point, point. and other countries around the world, the, the video rating systems are not voluntary. It's a crime to distribute a game to a child that's too young for the rating, so it, it was an answer to, there was a blogger who talked about Oh, it must not be video games, it must be guns in this country that are the problem. And I don't belittle the problem that guns uh, cause as well, uh, because all of these other countries have video games. But the blogger failed to recognize that in those other countries, they can't sell those games directly to children. And it's true that the major retailers are doing a better job here, but there are still other retailers that are not doing quite as good job.
0: There's definitely a cultural component. If you look at the media in, say, Japan, there's a lot more violent content in a lot of the... The manga and things like that in Japan, but they don't have access to guns. I mean, they're, 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 we could argue for 10 hours about this, and I prefer to look for the common ground, which I think is. And I think it's also important to look at U.S. media does have a heck of a lot of violence in it. One thing you'll see with the rating system with other countries, they're very lenient about, you know, cartoon nudity in games and games and things like that, but they're strict about violence. They, they even have, in some cases, asked, you know, games to have, asked to have the blood turned green, or asked to have the soldiers uh, have gears and springs come out so they look like robots. Countries with more of a heritage of, you know, concerns about war, like Germany. And I'd like to see our country make more things available with low violence ratings, for example, so parents could choose. I'll let my child play that game, but I want to play it on the low violence setting. I'd love to see that.
4: We're going to continue this discussion in just a moment, but we need to take a short break to hear a word from our sponsors. So please stay with us. We'll be right back to talk more about regulation of violent video games. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice, from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, along with my co-host, Jay Craig Williams. We're talking today with Cheryl Olson, an internationally known researcher on video game violence, and Kevin W. Saunders, professor of law and author of the book Violence as Obscenity, Limiting the Media's First Amendment Protection. Uh, Cheryl, I want to ask, is there any evidence uh, in the research of beneficial effects to children from playing violent video games?
0: In terms of violent games, a lot of the violent games have a lot of competitive elements and things in them, and a lot of collaborative elements. I'm not going to argue that the violence is good, but what I have seen is a lot of these games that are mature rated or teen rated are, for example, you can play them in collaborative modes where you're working with a team of people over the internet to forward your side in, in whatever way. And there's, I think there's some real evidence for the benefits in terms of learning to lead, learning to follow, learning to collaborate. My background, is I, I have a daughter in public health, so I tend to look at things from a public health perspective. And wh- one of the things that is sort of the of well, the tasks of adolescent development, you might say, is to try on different identities, see what it's like to do different things. And that's one reason often kids get into trouble with drugs and alcohol. And if you're playing a, a game, a role-playing game online where you can take on the role of a soldier or a thief or someone of a different gender or what have you, and you can act a different way with your friends, then say, oh, that's the game character being that. That's not me. I would much rather see them doing that than doing something in the real world where they say, well, I was drunk and I didn't mean it. And then they have the risk of getting somebody killed. Another benefit we see with games more in general is the chance for kids to learn how to persist toward a goal. You know, they keep, they fail, you know, they try again until they beat that level. They learn how to uh, deal with frustration and persevere. And there's a, there's a lot of research. You might have seen Walter Mitchell's research with these these things where they would give a kindergartner a marshmallow, and say, if you wait five minutes and don't eat it, when I come back, I'll give you another marshmallow. Uh, so he, he did a book, I think, a couple of years ago, talking about this research. They found long-term kids who could learn to delay gratification and deal with frustration by not eating that marshmallow. Maybe they lick it, or they, or they put it down and turn around, or sing those kids actually had better college entrance exam scores, better school grades, better uh, social relationships. And, you know, so in, some, in a way, video games, age-appropriate video games, I think could have a lot of benefits for kids. Again, you want to, the rating system is there for a reason. I urge parents to go to the Entertainment Software Rating Board website, read the synopsis, read why they rated it the way they did, and see whether they decide it's appropriate for their child.
1: I think the only difference we have there is not as terms of whether or not video games can be good for kids. Everything that Cheryl said, I think, is correct, and uh, virtual worlds, I think, can be a valuable place for some people to be. Uh, I just don't want to leave it uh, all the responsibility on the parents. I'd like to be able to back up what the parents want by not allowing the retailer to sell directly to the child, and if the parent thinks the child should have the game, have the parent go get the game.
4: In the... uh Brown case, Justice Breyer wrote a dissent where he describes a, s- a scene from that was submitted on the record in the case from a video game where it describes uh, the character shooting out a police officer's knee, dousing him with gasoline, lighting him on fire, urinating on his burning body, and then killing him with a gunshot to the head. A really disturbing scene from a, a video game. So, Kevin, given your belief that this case isn't going to be overturned in the immediate future. What can be done? Anything?
1: Education of parents, trying to increase the vigilance of parents with terms of what uh, the children do have access to is about the only thing that perhaps we can do uh, in the short term. And again, I think in the long term, as the science develops, there's the possibility of putting some legal teeth behind the ratings.
4: So legally nothing at this point is what you're saying.
1: I don't see any any likelihood at this point.
4: Cheryl sure, we have the unfortunate incident
3: several days ago of a young man I believe nine years old who picked up a gun out of his mother's bedroom and shot his sister in the back of her head when she wouldn't turn over the video game controller I mean that that just screams
0: issues. Well, she- Let me think. Of course, the game you mentioned a moment ago that they was, California drew almost all of those examples of depravity in video games from a game called Postal 2, which was a really obscure game that virtually nobody played, and I think it was only sold online, in fact, most places. It it was the kind of game that seemed designed especially to upset somebody's mother, basically, kind of like dyeing your hair blue in a (laughs) mohawk. Uh, You really have to double check what people are actually playing. And secondly, this thing about the nine-year-old shooting his sister, if the magic phrase video game controller had not been in the story, I doubt that would ever have made the news anywhere. People look – I remember one of oh, – maybe four or five years ago where some boy got a gun out of his grandmother's purse and happened to be playing a video game and shot someone. And the commonality here, these things that make the news are, you know, people, it's like this mental frame. People have of video games. And so that's the thing that rises to the top when the issue is, why is there an unrestricted firearm accessible to a nine-year-old? What the heck is happening in that household? Because th- the game controller, that's a normal thing that you find in lots and lots of millions of households across the country. An unrestricted loaded gun, that's not something you find.
1: The fact that it was a game controller doesn't make it a video game issue. It could have been anything that the child wanted and that the sister had. The other case that was mentioned, if a child had been playing video games and got a gun and shot someone, that might be a little bit closer to the concerns that I have. Law enforcement concerns have been quite strong. The the, the statute that was passed in the state of Washington and later thrown out was specifically games in which the player shot law enforcement officers. And the courts didn't like the specificity of it, but I wrote a brief in that case and I was representing the Police and Sheriff's Association and a variety of law enforcement associations that really did have a concern about this.
4: So is the focus on, on video games at all a political move to deflect from the gun issue? I mean, you know, no less uh, person than Wayne LaPierre, the head of the NRA, has specifically put the blame on video games for sowing uh, violence among people who play them. Is this a, a, a political maneuver?
1: I, I think that it is. And if you look at it, the, the liberals are going to blame guns and the conservatives are going to blame video games. And it's a combination of the inclination and the means. And I think we need to address both. Uh, And there's a failure in terms of liberals and conservatives to recognize two sides, in fact, of the video game issue and the juvenile justice issue, that the liberal position that you shouldn't punish teenagers as strongly as adults has to do with the plasticity of the developing teenage brain. But the other aspect of that plasticity is what the impact of the environment is. And again, one side emphasizes one aspect and the other side emphasizes the other aspect. Nobody's willing to put the two of them together.
0: I I, I want to say two things. First of all, I I think there it's hard not to see jumping to the video games instead of guns as a political tool and i i've met with politicians from both parties over the research that i was doing in recent years including vice president biden after sandy hook and one of the, one of the things that really strikes me about this is that it's it's so much easier as a politician to talk about something simple and concrete that could be addressed with a ban, rather than something like familial violence, violent neighborhoods. You know, you look at, if you look at the vast majority of research on real-world violence, youth violence prevention, at, at most they have violent video games as, as a footnote, any violent media as a footnote, because it's mostly about family violence, neighborhood violence, gang violence, even even head injuries and things of that nature. So I think that's one of the things we keep, need to keep in mind. The other thing is that playing any kind of media violence exposure doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like monkey see, monkey do. You know, a child is playing a... Uh, a video game or watching a movie, they're usually playing a video game with friends, they're seeing a movie in the family context, and it's up to the parents to engage in you know, what we call media literacy education and talk to kids about with what they're seeing or playing. You know, why do you think they showed that happening? What do you think would be the result if that happened in the real world? I, I did focus groups with 13-year-old boys as part of my research at Harvard, and even some of them were expressing concerns about, gee, if there's a, a violent movie and you see someone's arm get cut off, you might really be upset the first time. But the 20th time, you know, maybe not. You know, they were worried about being desensitized to violence. And what I think happens, and based on the many psychiatrists I've worked with, I think what happens is they do get desensitized to many of violence. But the real question is, does that jump to being desensitized to real-life violence? And I think there may be some cases where kids have other pre-existing problems where that could be an issue, but the vast majority of kids, they know what's real and what's not. And that's why also in my research we found that the kids, kids spontaneously brought up several times, what really scares me is the TV news, because of video games you know it's fake, and the news is real, and that's scary
3: it looks like we've reached the end of our program we'd like to invite our guests to share their final thoughts at this point so we'll give each one an opportunity to wrap up and uh, also give their contact information so our listeners can get a hold of you kevin we'll turn it over to you
1: yeah i don't disagree with any of the position that it's up to parents uh, to uh, handle their kids to contextualize the violence for their kids and so on i think that's the most the best thing that can be done Uh, All I try to do in my work was to back up the parents by not allowing third parties, stores and the like, to distribute these games to kids. The parents know which kids, or they should know, which kids are the ones that are more likely to be susceptible. Uh, And that's what the California statute did. It was only addressed to third-party vendors, uh, but the court did strike it down. And as I said, I don't see that uh, changing in the short term. Uh, In terms of contact information, I can be reached through the uh, Michigan State University College of Law website. It will have my phone number, email address, and the like on it.
3: Great. Thank you very much. And Cheryl?
0: Yeah, I think parents need to keep in mind that research finds over and over that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in terms of values. What you say and do in your daily life will affect your children much more. But be very mindful of your own behavior with media and what you expose them to, even background television. A lot of households have that stuff running in the background all the time. So do think twice and take control of your kids' media use. If people would like to see the research I've done in this area, uh, my website is drcherylolson.com, and my book Grand Theft Childhood is. available on Amazon if they'd like to look into that further.
4: Well, thanks a lot to both of you. We've been speaking with Cheryl Olson, an internationally known researcher on video game violence, and Professor Kevin W. Saunders, author of the book, Violence as Obscenity, Limiting the Media's First Amendment Protection. Thanks to both of you for taking the time to share your thoughts on this topic today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
4: And that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts.
3: You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams, along with my co host Bob Ambrosi. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer.
2: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosio for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.